You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual They're going to the polls in Alabama today. And the choice is between a former prosecutor who sent men who murdered little girls to jail and a credibly accused sexual predator, alleged, who preyed on little girls, allegedly. Since the prosecutor in this U.S. Senate race, Doug Jones, has a D next to his name and the alleged sexual predator, Roy Moore, has an R next to his name. And since this is Alabama, we are talking about The accused sexual predator, the alleged child predator, is up five points in the polls. The betting markets give more an 80% chance of victory. Harry Enten writes at 538, roughly the same chance they gave Hillary Clinton just before the 2016 presidential election. Spoiler, Hillary Clinton did not win the 2016 presidential election. So I guess anything is possible here. Doug Jones, Democrat, could wind up in the U.S. Senate representing blood red Alabama, but it sure looks like Alabama is going to send a guy to the U.S. Senate who was banned from a shopping mall, banned for harassing teenage girls. But it's important to remember that Roy Moore was spectacularly unqualified, unfit to be in the U.S. Senate even before we found out about his history of alleged sexual predation. He calls himself a constitutionalist but believes there should be a religious test to hold office, something our founding fathers banned. They banned religious tests for office in Article 6 of the Constitution that Moore claims to revere. And Moore doesn't think women should be able to vote or hold office. Moore was removed from the Supreme Court of Alabama twice for violating legitimate orders from higher courts and flouting the rule of law. Oh, and while he was on the Supreme Court, he routinely sided with sexual offenders. He's tough on crime, Trump says. Unless you're talking about the crime of rape and then not so tough. Moore has also said our country was better and that families were stronger under slavery. And he said that, quote, getting rid of every amendment to the U.S. Constitution after the 10th would, quote, solve a lot of problems. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th guaranteed equal protection under the law. The 15th gave black men the right to vote. The 19th Amendment gave women, black and white, the right to vote. He thinks they should all be gone, that they caused a lot of problems. All those amendments caused so many problems. That would also mean getting rid of the 22nd Amendment, which limited presidents to two terms. And yeah, maybe that one needed to go before our last election because Obama would still be president if he'd been allowed to run for a third term. And not to personalize this too much, but Roy Moore thinks gay people are evil and that same-sex marriage is a threat to children. Not perverts at the mall chasing 14-year-old girls around. Married gay couples, they're the threat. And trans people, of course, using the bathroom, a threat to children. We're hearing about whataboutism these days. Someone raises issue Y and someone else jumps up to say, well, what about issue X? Not because they give a shit about issue X, but because they want to derail discussion of issue Y. But with the entire religious right coming out in defense of Roy Moore, lining up behind him just as they lined up behind sexual predator Donald Trump, we should also make some time to talk about look over there-ism. That's what religious conservatives have been doing to queers for decades. Pointed gay men then and now and pointed trans women today calling us child predators while men like Roy Moore and a seemingly infinite number of rapey youth pastors out there pick off kids one by one in churches and shopping malls. 
And after insisting for years, for four fucking decades, that gay men lust after adolescence, conservative Christians, like the ones GOP pollster Frank Luntz interviewed for Vice, are offering defenses for Roy Moore that go like this. If Roy Moore was guilty, if, if he was at the mall hitting on this 14-year-old, 40 years ago in Alabama, there's a lot of mamas and daddies that'd be thrilled that their 14-year-old was getting hit on by a district attorney. But hitting on teenagers at the mall, sexually assaulting teenagers in your car, as Moore is accused of doing, it's only okay if you can knock that teenager up. That was Tully Borland's argument in The Federalist. This is a practice with, and I quote from Bullard's essay, a long history and is not without some merit if one wants to raise a large family. To have a large family, the wife must start having kids when she is very young. The husband needs to be well-established and able to support the family, in which case he will typically need to marry when older. I wish I had a bar of soap here so I could wash my own mouth out with soap after repeating Borland's argument. The actions of evangelical Christians and the knots they're tying themselves into to defend the indefensible, it tells us, well, it tells all of us now what the gay community has long known and what the country has been slowly coming to grips with since evangelicals backed Donald Trump for president and helped put that asshole in the White House. It was never about morality, the moral majority on down, never about morality or protecting children or a Christianity that anyone with a passing familiarity with the Christ of the Gospels might recognize. It was about power, political power, and patriarchy, and sexism, and hatred, and homophobia, and xenophobia, and racism. The same evangelical Christians who spent the last few years freaking out about the bogus threat of trans women preying on little girls in public restrooms, another case of look over there-ism, are out there now saying that it is fine for men to prey on little girls— so long as they can get them pregnant. They've also said that queers, gay men in particular, are out to destroy Christianity. They want you to look over there at those people, those people over there. They're destroying Christianity. But you know what? The people destroying Christianity, they aren't outside the building. They aren't outside the church. They are in it. They are in politicized pulpits. They are in megachurch pews. And if Alabama sends Roy Moore to the Senate, there's going to be another one of those assholes in the U.S. Senate. All right, coming up on today's show, I school a men's rights activist type fool. I give some advice to an asexual teenager. And on the Magnum subscription version of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, I chat with Lynn Fairweather about spotting signs of an abuser nice and early. Hi, all. Uh, 30-year-old bisexual left coaster here. And I have a question about aftercare. I know aftercare is a term used in the kink community. I'm not really a kinkster yet. Now, I'm curious about aftercare when it comes to just hookup or vanilla or non-kinky, whatever, sex. Recently, I slept with a good friend of mine after years of knowing each other, and it was fun, but I felt like after we slept together, there was, um, it was lacking in the aftercare department. This made me think a lot about what my needs are after I hook up with someone and feel really vulnerable and what helps me feel safe and seen and good. I'm really sexually active, but in all my sexual forays, I haven't talked much about that, nor have I felt like it has come up much. So I'm just wondering if there's sort of a precedent for this, if other people have, how they bring things up like this when you're hooking up with someone for the first time, how you go about saying, hey, after we hook up, it'll, you know, it, it'll feel really good to me if we interact in this way. Um, 
And the best way to kind of bring those needs up while also honoring that when you hook up with someone, they don't, like, how much do they owe you? How much do they not? Um, and if this isn't happening much, can we sort of start an aftercare revolution? I've been writing my column for a long time and now officially doing this podcast for a long time. And one of the changes I've noted in sort of the counseling culture, couples counseling culture, psychotherapist culture, psychoanalyst culture, sex and relationship uh, research culture, all these people really coming around on kinky people and kinksters and, and the kink community and kinky sex and looking now to kinky people, not just no longer regarding kinky desires as aberrant or or, or sick or perverted or non-normative. We now know that when it comes to human sexuality, deviance is the norm. But looking to the way kinky people and kink culture kind of organize their relationships, negotiate their relationships, and finding things of value there for vanilla types, things like negotiations, things like how kinky people will talk, sometimes in great and exhausting detail about what it is that they want to do with a new partner so that everyone's on the same page, so then they can play safely and consensually. And that's something that people, even if you're just going to have vanilla sex, might want to emulate. Also, you have couples counselors now working with people in sexless marriages or marriages where they've kind of lost a spark and pointing to kinky couples who plan sex. You know, if you're going to have a three-way or you're going to have a big kinky weekend away or you're going to a swingers conference or convention because you're a super kinky, crazy couple, that's something that you plan. It's planned, scheduled sex. And often what they find when couples counselors, vanilla ones, or people who work with vanilla couples, look at the kinky couples is that planned sex isn't bad sex, that planned sex is something that is anticipated and couples get excited about. Kinky couples do. And then they wind up having a lot of sex in advance of the planned sex. So you have couples in who are, you know, the spark isn't there. They're not really having sex. And the counselor will say, you know, you should schedule sex. And they're like, oh, no, scheduled sex is terrible sex. That's no fun. It has to be spontaneous. But no, look at the kinky people. They're scheduling sex. And it's great. And it's real fuel, that schedule, knowing that time is coming. And what they say is that kinky people schedule sex, have sex in anticipation of the scheduled sex, and then have sex in the wake of the scheduled sex. So yeah, scheduled sex, that works. Also, and I think the caller's on to something here, aftercare. That is something that people do in kinkland. If you're going to do something crazy bondage and SM-wise where you are consensually engaging in pain play, impact play, where you're hurting someone or controlling someone or dominating someone, that can stir up a lot of really intense emotions. And then after that, after the kinky sex, after you untie that person, after you bruise that person consensually, you might want to hold that person. Actually, you're obligated to hold that person. That's what aftercare is. You're obligated to have a moment where you connect, where you hug, where you make sure that they're okay, where you check in, where the roles fall away. And you're human beings again, or you're human beings in a different way now, and you take care of them. You engage in aftercare. You cuddle. That also might be something that people out there in vanilla land and hookup land want to adopt. Aftercare. And aftercare isn't only just for kinky people in long-term relationships. Kinky people who get together to play once or once in a while come through with the aftercare if they're good at that kink stuff. And if you don't come through with the aftercare, you're probably not going to be very popular in your kink community and not going to be someone that people want to play with again and again and again. You'll get a reputation for being shitty, for not being good at aftercare. Maybe you're great at the bondage, great at the S&M, but if you can't come through with the aftercare, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good you are at the rest of it. The aftercare is a very important part of it in kink land. But I think sometimes in kink land, it's easier for the kinksters to come through with the aftercare because the negotiations that occurred earlier, that occurred before the scene, 
usually included a conversation about relationship status, about relationship possibilities, whether this was a one-time, a one-off thing, a one-time thing that may lead to an occasional thing, so that the aftercare can't be misinterpreted, so that that intimacy and that connection that you feel in the aftercare isn't going to be interpreted by either party as the establishment of an emotional connection that indicates that there is a relationship now or a different kind of relationship now or the depth of feeling now that means you're moving toward a relationship because you've had a conversation about what kind of relationship you're going to have usually during the negotiations about what kind of sex you're about to have. The problem for a lot of people who have vanilla hookups after the sex, after that intimacy, is that if you cuddle, if you are kind and decent and attentive and caring, that one or the other or both may misinterpret that as – I want to be your boyfriend. I want to be your girlfriend. I want to get serious about you. And if you're not both on the same page about that yet, one or the other or both may misinterpret that kindness and that compassion as an opening, as an invitation, as a commitment to at least possibly committing more seriously down the road. And if you're not interested in seeing this person again, if you're not interested in having a relationship with this one person, maybe you want to see them again, but you're not interested in being serious, if you come through with tenderness – in the, after the hookup, you may worry that they're going to misinterpret that and vice versa. So I really don't think you're going to have a revolution. I would totally support this revolution. I think it's a great idea to have an aftercare revolution in vanilla hookup land. But I don't think you can have that aftercare revolution until you have the negotiation revolution. All too often, people get to consent, straight people, and they stop talking or an opposite sex couple. They get to consent. We are going to have sex. And they stop All negotiations because what's going to happen next is assumed. It's PIV intercourse. That's what straight sex is. That's why so much straight sex is lousy and limited because straight people don't negotiate because they don't have to. You know, two dudes go to bed together. There's two dicks. Who's going to do what to whom? You can't get to consent and stop talking. You get to consent and you keep talking about what's going to happen. Same thing in kinkland. You get to consent and like what's going to happen? Who's going to do what to who is something you have to negotiate. And in those negotiations – You have better understanding about what you mean to each other and what's possible. And unless straight people in vanilla hookup land begin to have more complicated and sort of open-ended conversations and negotiations about consent and about sex and what's going to happen, they're not going to understand what's possible, what they might mean to each other coming out of this event. And then they'll feel inhibited coming through with the aftercare afterwards for fear that the aftercare, that tenderness and intimacy offered may be misinterpreted as a promise for another hookup or for a relationship, a promise you don't want to make or a promise you may not be ready to make, a promise you may never want to make because you don't want a relationship period or don't want a relationship with this person as much as you enjoyed the sex. And that can lead people to not come through with the aftercare for fear of leading someone on and hurting their feelings. So you hook up with somebody after the sex, it's kind of cold and you retreat to your separate corners and you get dressed and you leave and you feel hurt. Because there was no tenderness in the wake of the sex. Let's say there's aftercare and you come through with the aftercare and that person misinterprets the aftercare and the tenderness in the moment as, hey, I might be really interested in you emotionally, romantically. There's a real – I felt a real connection. And if that person misinterprets it that way, they will be hurt when they come at you for another hookup or a date and you have to shut that down because you didn't want that. You wanted to be kind. And tender and hold them in the wake of the sex, but you didn't want to – you wanted to be kind and tender and hold them after the sex, but you didn't promise them anything. So yes, an aftercare revolution, but there needs to be a negotiation revolution 
and an understanding before the hookup about what's possible after the hookup so that people cannot feel inhibited about coming through with that kind of tenderness and that kind of aftercare. As for you, caller, and God, I have gone on and on and on, getting back to you, caller, if what you require after a hookup is some tenderness and some being held and some laying around in a bowl of ice cream, put that on the table and very specifically say, I would love to hook up with you. I'd love to have sex. Just so you know, after sex in the glow, we're going to have to cuddle and spoon or whatever just a little bit because I need that too. That's part of sex for me. That doesn't mean you propose to me. That doesn't mean I propose to you. That doesn't mean you ever have to see me again or I ever have to see you again, but just in the wake of it. Let's be good and kind to each other. Let's lay together for a little while and then get up, go to our separate corners, get dressed and bold. Hi, Dan. I'm kind of having an identity crisis. So I've been identifying as a lesbian for the past six years or so, and it's felt really right. But recently, I've been insanely attracted to this guy that I work with and I don't know what to do about it. I just fantasize about him going down on me in the stairwell and I'm just kind of losing my mind. Um, But there's a catch because if anything were to come to fruition, I just don't want anything to do with his dick. And I don't know if this is a situation that I can kind of discuss because obviously if he's consenting to my terms, then it's, I think, technically okay. But I don't know if it's cruel to tell a guy that I want him to go down on me, but I don't want to touch him at all. Like we can, you know, make out whatever, fool around a little bit, but I just, I don't want his dick to be there and he's just a very beautiful man and it's pretty much only him that I feel attracted to in this way towards guys but I don't know if this is just a thing of me being I I, I don't know I would just love your input there is nothing cruel about hitting on a guy there is nothing cruel about laying out for him what you would be comfortable with and what you would not be comfortable with. There's nothing cruel about allowing someone who wants to eat your pussy or suck your dick to eat your pussy or suck your dick on your terms. Head over to Craigslist. Look at the Men Seeking Men ads. You will find many, 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 many Men Seeking Men ads from straight or straight-identified guys in straight relationships who are seeking gay men who want nothing more than to get on their knees and suck some straight guy off without any reciprocity. It's literally called no recip because that's what turns them on because they enjoy that. They want to be used in that way. They want to serve in that way. Maybe the guy getting blown, the straight guy whose dick is in the mouth of another man, will be comfortable with the dude blowing him, pulling out his own dick and jacking off. He doesn't want to touch his dick. Maybe he doesn't even want to let him take his dick out. If the gay guy is into kind of dom-sub service like that and can jack off about it later and really enjoy it, Yahtzee, everybody wins. Everybody's happy. I don't know this guy at your workplace. I don't know what he would want to do. I don't know what he's into. But it's possible that rolling around a little making out and then just orally servicing – this hot dyke from work might be something that he would really enjoy doing. He is the only person who knows what the answer to 
this proposed scenario might be to this question, to the question you want to put to him. And you have to then respect his desires. If he doesn't want to do it, if he doesn't desire this, if it's not enough for him, if being with a woman who wouldn't want to see or touch his dick makes him feel bad or it sounds like a sexual encounter that there would be nothing in it for him and he wouldn't enjoy, then he doesn't have to do it. Eating your pussy is a completely opt-in proposition. But if he does want to do it, you can, without guilt, let him do it. And there's nothing cruel. There's nothing cruel about allowing someone to do with you something that they might enjoy. Now, someone might look at that, the bean counters out there, or there are a lot of bean counters who look at different people's sexual arrangements or agreements and read unfairness or cheating or cruelty into shit that isn't theirs to read unfairness or cruelty into. Someone might look at that and go, well, that's not fair because you're getting your pussy eating, you're getting oral sex, and he's getting nothing. That's not fair. That's not fair. Well, if he enjoys it, if it gets him off, even if he has to jack off about it later, then it was fair. There was something in it for him. But you know what? You're asking the wrong dick having person right now. This question, the person to put this question to is him. Provided, of course, there's not a power imbalance in your workplace, that you're not his supervisor, that he won't feel coerced in any way, and you won't lose your job. Provided all of that, if you guys are equal colleagues and your workplace allows for workplace romances or workplace hookups and it's not going to be a problem, I say go for it. Hello, this is a call with regard to episode 577 uh, where Dan said that men shouldn't sleep with women who are blackout drunk. How about we say people shouldn't sleep with people that are blackout drunk and dispense with the uh, uneven um, applications uh, of these things. Um, On the one hand, you have people who uh, are on the progressive side that fight for equality and want women and men to be treated equally. And then on the other hand, you have things like this where there's a double standard and it's only women that shouldn't be slept with and it's always the man's fault. So how about we have a little egalitarianism with regard to this? I think we could dispense with the uneven side of things. Once we lived in a world where women were no likelier to be raped by men than men were likely to be raped by women, but we live in a world where women are preyed upon, where women are sexually assaulted, where women are raped, and where the overwhelming majority of sexual assaults and rapes are men sexually assaulting and raping women. So when we talk about rape and sexual assault, of course we're going to frame it in that way. The people out there who are getting women blackout drunk intentionally swing by a frat party sometime. The people getting people intentionally drunk so they can sexually assault them are men. Getting women drunk intentionally to sexually assault them. The people putting date rape drugs in people's drinks in bars so that they can sexually assault those people that they have drugged, men are doing that to women. Women are not doing that to men. So when we talk about rape and sexual assault, we talk about men doing that to women. It's not about double standards. It's not about being unfair to men. Hashtag not all men. It is about acknowledging, recognizing the reality of sexual violence, which is overwhelmingly men on women. Now, for you, sir, to ask me or anyone else who talks about these issues to strip gender out of it is to ask essentially for your gender, for men to be let off the hook to pretend that everyone, male and female, that both of these two groups are equally responsible for the problem of sexual violence. And that is just not true. That is a fucking lie. Men are responsible for 
sexual violence. Overwhelmingly so. There are incidents out there, of course, of men being sexually violated by women. Absolutely. But the problem, overwhelmingly, is a male problem, sexual violence. Men do this, overwhelmingly. And so we can't just put a gloss on that to make you feel better about your dick or to absolve you of absolve all men, myself included, of collective responsibility for recognizing, which is the first step, and then tackling and doing something about the epidemic of sexual violence that has been going on for millennia. So no, I'm not going to dispense with the uneven side of things. No, I'm not going to treat this as if men and women were equally responsible and equally guilty. That said, and I am a complete supporter of consent culture, we were talking about yes means yes on this show years ago and in my column a long time ago. That said, there are people out there who argue that if anyone's had a sip of alcohol or a hit of pot, that consent is not possible. And that just also refuses to recognize the reality of the way human beings function, that human beings are inhibited, we're sexually inhibited, and that a lot of us will want to have a drink or two to take the edge off and so that we can loosen up and be social and make ourselves available and approach people and welcome the approach of others and find sex partners and Alcohol and to some small extent, other drugs, grease the wheels, grease the gears, make that possible. It is possible for two people who've had a couple of drinks to have sex and for that to be consensual. It is also possible for one person to have sex with somebody who is blackout drunk and incapable of offering meaningful consent and to intentionally take advantage of that person in that state. It is also possible for someone to unintentionally take advantage of someone in that state. It is also possible for two people who are pretty much equally blackout drunk to take advantage of each other in that state. And for two people to together have sex that neither of them could meaningfully consent to. It is a murky, grayish area, which is why people should err on the side of not having sex when you're fucking too fucked up to remember or enjoy it. But a sex-negative culture that really puts the zap, not just on men's heads, but a sex-negative slut-shaming culture that puts the zap on women's heads about their own desires and their own agency, that can create an incentive for some people who want to have sex to drink a lot so they can have permission, so they can give themselves permission, so they can find permission in a case of fucking Budweiser that they couldn't find in their own moral code because of the religious bullshit that they were raised with or the slut-shaming they were subjected to by family or friends or peers or the culture itself. One of the things that sets people up for this kind of violation is a culture that denies women their desires, their agency, and leaves them feeling like they don't have permission to do what they want to do unless they get drunk. And that plays out also with men, but to a much lesser extent, because the culture tells men that they can have what they want, that they're entitled to what they want. Look at what we're seeing on the news right now about men, powerful men. Or just average men feeling entitled to do what they want with the bodies of their female co-workers, colleagues, underlings, overlings. Men are less dependent, less vulnerable to boozing it up to do what they want because men are going to do what they want anyway. So in these situations where people are going to booze it up to do what they want, women, because of the slut-shaming, because of the culture, because of the inhibitions that are pounded into them more intensely – are more vulnerable to being taken advantage of in that way. And again, women are subjected to most of the sexual violence, the overwhelming 99.99% of the sexual violence meted out by men to women. So no, caller, no. I am not going to make this a person v. person problem. This is a men v. women problem. 
problem. And in the gay community, it's a men v. men problem often. But it is not women v. men. Women are the victims almost invariably of sexual violence at the hands of men. I'm not going to pretend that this is an even Steven thing because that is a bullshit lie pushed by men who want not to do something about sexual violence but to be let off the hook for it. Um, hi, Dan. I am a 16-year-old girl, and I know your show is all about sex, but I'm wondering about asexuality. Uh, I don't really know who to ask, so I'm asking you. And basically, I, I don't have any kind of sex drive. I mean, I don't get crushes on guys or girls or anybody. Um, I asked my doctor about it, and she said, oh, you're just not into boys right now. And I, I don't think that's it. I mean, I think I would still want to try masturbating or something. Um, I've been taking hormonal birth control continuously for a while because I'm a competitive athlete. Uh, I don't want to have to deal with my period, so I'm wondering if that could have something to do with it. Um, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about having a relationship and being asexual. Uh, I don't know. I, I would like to maybe get married or have a boyfriend at some point in my life, but I don't, I'm not really interested in sex. If you're looking for information about asexuality and to learn more about asexuality, you should head on over to asexuality.org, the Asexual Visibility and Education Network. The founder of AVEN is a guy named David Jay, who's asexual and asexuality activist, really opened my eyes to the whole issue and, and the phenomenon of asexuality. He is married and he and his wife have a child. They are both asexual. They don't have sex and they do have a relationship. Asexuality doesn't mean necessarily that you aren't interested in intimacy or connection or partnership. You're just not into or interested in sex to varying degrees. Asexuality, as everything is these days, is a spectrum and people fall at different points along that spectrum. And some asexual people do engage in sex occasionally. Some asexual people masturbate. Some don't. Go to asexuality.org, caller, to learn more. I think, however, you also might want to keep an open mind. I got a letter this morning from a woman who says that for many years she identified as and believed herself to be asexual, and then she met someone and really, really connected with this person, and they began to have sex, and suddenly she was really into sex, and now she identifies as a demisexual, which is a person who can't feel sexual attraction or desire in the absence of a strong, intense emotional connection. So you don't know what's possible for you, particularly at your age. You have your life ahead of you. And if you are taking hormonal birth control and enough of it to suppress your period, that can also inhibit your libido. That can also impact your libido. I would recommend if you're curious about figuring yourself out, if not now, but at some point in the future, going off birth control, going off hormonal birth control, if that's possible for you medically. Of course, you should talk to your doctor. There are other reasons besides uh, birth control that people will take hormonal birth control. Maybe you have other medical issues. Please talk to your doctor. Don't just stop taking these pills on my recommendation alone. But some people find that their libido is suppressed on hormonal birth control and then they go off it and it kicks into gear or it morphs into something different, that they're attracted to a different type of person off hormonal birth control. So you are really young. You're only 16 years old. There's plenty of time for you to work through this and figure it out. There is no rush and there is nothing wrong with you right now. There's nothing wrong with you if ultimately you're asexual. There's nothing wrong with you if you're demisexual. There's nothing wrong with you at all. Your sexuality is your sexuality. It will reveal itself to you in time. Keep an open mind and pay attention and read and think and you don't necessarily have to commit to any one identity or commit to one identity permanently 
like the person who wrote me today who said that for many years, identified as asexual, their body revealed something different to them, and now they identify as demisexual. The labels are out there to assist us in understanding ourselves and also communicating who we are to others. They're not permanently affixed to us. You will find the labels that work for you in time and for a time, perhaps. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a 30-something cis queer woman from uh, the Canadian prairies, and I have a question for you. A friend of mine in our community has just come out as genderqueer non-binary, which is great. And they often still present pretty femme, but the only problem and question I have is they have a tendency to express complete disgust and contempt at um, ever being identified as female or anything to do with being a female or a woman or anything like that. And as a woman, it's starting to kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. I think they're doing this maybe because they were female assigned at birth and now they're, they've come out as non-binary and are trying to draw that solid line uh, between what they were assigned as and who they really are, which I totally respect and understand. Uh, but it's starting to really kind of get to me. And uh, I'm wondering, what do you think? Should I tell them to knock it off? Or should I just kind of shut up and, and let them express themselves however they feel? Think of the straight guy who pops into a gay bar, maybe with his girlfriend or a group of friends from work, some of whom happen to be gay, and they decide to pop into a gay bar for a change. What would we think of that straight guy if somebody, because he was in that gay bar, assumed he was gay, hit on him or began to talk to him as gay man to gay man? If that straight guy blew the fuck up and got indignant and angry, we would say, wow, you're kind of a homophobic asshole, aren't you? This person made this assumption. There's nothing wrong with being gay. Made a, we're an assumption-making species. We make assumptions all day long. That's not necessarily a problem so long as the assumption isn't malicious or rooted in prejudice or bias, not necessarily a problem. And you blowing up in this furious rage because somebody in this gay bar that you're hanging in thought you were gay. Don't be such a homophobic asshole. There's nothing wrong with being gay. I'm a gay parent. And when my kid was very young, when my kid was an infant, there would be times when I was out alone with my kid or even out with my husband and my kid where someone would see me with this baby backpack on with this darling, big blue eyed infant in it and ask the infant, ask the toddler that I was carrying around where mommy was or ask me about my wife and you know, how well she was doing uh, after the, the birth, you know, was she bouncing back? How's the wife at home still in the hospital, still recovering? They would just assume I was straight because most people out there, most men out there running around with infants, particularly 20 years ago, weren't gay. And what did I do at those moments? Did I fly into a rage because somebody without malice made a kind of reasonable assumption that would be usually correct? No. They would ask me where the wife was and I would say he's at home with his penis. 
or I'd make a joke and I would gently and in a friendly way, like let them know that they were talking to one of these new and magical gay parents that they'd, that they'd maybe heard something about in the news. Your friend, this non-binary person flying into a rage when people make the not necessarily malicious assumption that this femme presenting assigned female at birth, female bodied person is a woman that would annoy me too. And I'm not even a woman that would annoy me that annoy the misogyny in that annoys me. And I'm sitting here with my dick and that annoys me. If I was this non-binary person's female friends and every time somebody thought she might be a woman too, she blew up in this psycho rage. I would put her in the same category that I would put the straight guy in the gay bar who flies into a rage when someone assumes he might be gay or the gay guy with the infant who, when somebody assumed he might be straight, blew up in a rage as opposed to seize the opportunity to let someone know that there are different types of parents in the world. Your friend, your non-binary friend who presents femme, can seize the opportunity to educate people, to open their eyes to the fact that some people, despite how they present, aren't what you might assume them to be. So therefore, you should make assumptions. Your friend would rather be furious. Maybe that's what she enjoys. Maybe that's what she's after. Or maybe that's what came bundled with the non-binary identity and it's a perk. You don't have to hang out for it. You don't have to be friends with people who are misogynist. I wouldn't be friends with a straight guy who was going to blow up and lose it if somebody thought he was gay for two seconds. That's not a straight guy I would hang out with. And I hang out with a lot of straight guys. That's not the kind of straight guy I would hang out with. This might not be the kind of non-binary person you want to hang out with. Hi. So my husband and I live in a big coastal city. I'm in my late 20s. He's in his early 30s. And I'm expecting a baby. We both work full time and will continue to do so after the baby's born. And we make about the same amount of money, but I make a bit more. And one of the many things I love about him is that he's really progressive when it comes to gender equity. And that comes through in the ways that he thinks about a lot of things, our careers, our sex life, the way we argue, etc. I know that he's got a lot of respect for me and it goes both ways. But he just doesn't seem to care or notice when the house is a pigsty. He leaves his clothes and shoes all over the place. He doesn't put his breakfast dishes in the sink, let alone wash them after using them. He never sweeps the floor or wipes down the surfaces. He does some things around the house, but mostly I have to ask him to do it. And the thing is, I truly believe that he's not just waiting for me to do these chores. He just really doesn't care that much if they get done at all. I recently read a statistic that said that men in hetero relationships perceive that they are doing their fair share when they contribute just 36% of the work at home. I've brought this idea up with my husband before, and he gets pretty defensive when I do. He starts to list all the chores he's done recently, and he refuses to believe that he could be a part of that statistic of men overestimating how much they actually do around the house. I know that I could just forget about it or try to let this place become even more of a mess, and he wouldn't say a word. He'd continue on totally happily, but I'd be miserable because I hate having a big mess around me all the time. So I have to handle it myself and nag him to help out. So my question is, how do I address this problem without breeding defensiveness or resentment? Um, And how do I make sure that I'm not bringing a kid into a home that 
implicitly or not so implicitly values his leisure time more than it does mine. I would be so ecstatic if my husband did 36% of the chores around the house, if my husband could wipe down a surface. And, and he does sometimes. Maybe he does like 22%, but my God, 36%. I am married to a – not a, he's not filthy, but he's a little messy and he like like your husband. He doesn't see things that I see. Rips open a package of something like the dog food. And there's that thing you tear across the top. And as soon as it's torn off the bag, his hand opens and it floats down to wherever it's going to land. And as far as Terry's concerned, it does not exist anymore. He cannot see it. I have to pick it up and put it in the garbage. This is a price of admission I am willing to pay. He takes care of the laundry. I never, I haven't washed my own underpants in 20 years. It's awesome. He takes care of the car. I don't have to think about it. I don't know how to drive. So it's a good thing he wants to take care of the car because I wouldn't know what to do with it. There are big things he does, but I do all the little things. The putting the shoes, the picking up the 10 pairs of shoes from around the bed in our bedroom and throwing them back in the closet. That's my job. Those shoes are invisible to him. Even as he stumbles over them in the dark to get to the bathroom in the middle of the night, he doesn't see them. And doesn't remember them in the morning when he stumbles back over them in the morning when he gets out of bed. I move them. Price of admission I am willing to pay. If you are unwilling to pay this price of admission to do more of the housework, and it's unfortunate that also it can break out along gendered lines and heterosexual relationships. In gay relationships, we don't have that gender default setting around chores. We also don't have that kind of gendered self-consciousness or resentment. I don't feel like I'm betraying my women's studies professor when I do more of the housework and the cleaning up than Terry does literally mopped the floors this weekend. It didn't feel like my gender study professor is going to burst out of the closet and scold me for it. You might feel that way. So what do you do? Well, you marry somebody else too late. You're having a baby with this man. You have two incomes. You're both going to continue to make money rather than arguing about whether he's doing half. Just stop arguing about it and hire someone to come in every couple of weeks to do some of the surface wiping, to do some of the heavy lifting. Maybe you'll still have to do more of the day-to-day -day routine picking up, but if somebody is coming every couple of weeks, if you guys can afford it, to do the sweeping and mopping and vacuuming and washing windows and dusting, and let's say if you can get him to acknowledge that he doesn't do his fair share, maybe that comes out of his money, not your money. Maybe that's how he contributes to the upkeep around the house. Because I'm with you. I can't live in a pigsty. I can't live in a dump. Makes me depressed. So I keep the house clean for us both. He keeps our underpants clean for us both. Double check, make sure he isn't doing large and big things that you don't do and wouldn't want to do, yard work or whatever else. And then find a way to draft up a truce that isn't about getting him to do more than he can remember to or wants to, but getting him to acknowledge that you do more and that he has to make that up to you in ways big and small, but also perhaps cough up a couple hundred bucks a month that it would cost for somebody to swing by and do the deep scrub. Dear Dan, I am a 26-year-old woman from a blue city in Texas. I first want to thank you for your amazing podcast, which I only discovered this past July, soon after breaking up with my now ex-boyfriend. It was an extremely difficult breakup and binge listening to your wisdom really helped me to get out of bed every morning and do my best to carry on. I've had problems trusting others for a while now as 
many people do by my age, but I'm now facing the problem of trusting myself. I have had two significant relationships in my life. The first lasted four years and the second, which ended this past summer, lasted less than a year. My first boyfriend was extremely emotionally and abusive and manipulative throughout our four years together. And it was only at the end that I realized just how much I let my love for him bind me to the abuse. I vowed to never let love blind me like that again, because I realized that I am a good partner that deserves so much more. However, the more distance I get from my second boyfriend, the one I broke up with this past summer, the more I realized that I once again was essentially unaware while in love of how shitty I was letting my partner be to me. At least this last relationship did not last very long, even if the love for him I had was really significant. Uh, My question is, how do I prevent myself from being blinded by love? In the beginning of a relationship, everyone is on their best behavior. As we fall in love, we are our most GGG and, and out of the bedroom. It is once we are in love, attached and committed that a partner will, will often let out a more abusive side in my experience. When I fall in love, I know that I fall hard and don't fully recognize when a partner is no longer GGG. I'm terrified to be in a committed relationship again, to fall in love again. Um, I'm terrified to trust myself in choosing a partner that will be good to me in the long run and not just the initial falling in love process. Uh, How do I check myself while in a relationship and make sure that I am fully aware of emotional abuse and manipulation? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Lynn Fairweather, a domestic violence consultant, speaker, and the author of Stop Signs, Recognizing, Avoiding, and Escaping Abusive Relationships. Hey, Lynn, thank you for jumping on the phone this morning. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm tempted just to say go. Your area of expertise, you wrote the book, literally (laughs) wrote the book. I'm tempted to say go, but I want to open with a question. You know, one of the things we talk about as a warning sign of an abuser is pressure to make an early commitment. You know, getting engaged Mm -hmm. after a week, getting married after three months, moving in together really fast. And we talk about that a lot. Like, hey, look out for that. It seems to me that someone who, when they fall, falls hard, when they fall in love, they fall early and they fall hard, is an easy mark for an abuser with that early rush to make the commitment strategy. That that they're going to miss that particular red flag if they fall early and fall hard. They lose their heads. I would agree. And there, that's, uh, there are a lot of ways in which abusers are testing and priming potential victims before they actually get into the relationship. And they are looking for certain things. What are they looking for? Well, typically they're looking for traits that in the hands of a normal person are good things. But in the hands of an abuser, they get turned around and used against you. So, for example, some of those traits might be someone who's compassionate, someone who's generous, who is forgiving or nurturing. And then they'll see this in an individual and they'll know that that's fertile ground for them to get in there and take advantage. The caller asks, how does she learn to trust herself? Should she trust herself? Like if her instinct is to fall early and fall hard and twice, and it's possible to draw the short straw twice. It may be nothing the caller in particular has done. There are enough abusive assholes rattling around out there 
particularly emotionally abusive assholes, for someone to have two in a row. And she's only had two relationships. Just talking about two relationships. But she asks, how does she learn to trust herself? And maybe the sort of paradoxical thing to tell her is, well, don't trust yourself. You need to scrutinize mm-hmm. yourself. You need to be wary of, mm-hmm. of your propensity to fall early and fall hard and fall for potentially emotionally manipulative abusers. So, you know, when you feel that surge of, oh, I'm so in love. I just met this person. I'm so in love. I'm falling so hard. You shouldn't trust that. You should say, that's how I feel. And that's a wonderful feeling. And now we're going to see if this guy is worthy of all of this feeling that is rising up in me that may or may not be appropriate for him and for this relationship. So don't trust yourself. Yeah, don't trust someone, your instinct. Absolutely. If somebody, well, if somebody knows that they have those tendencies, then they do have to apply a little extra scrutiny to their relationships. I would always recommend that people trust their, their gut and their instinct, but we have to learn how to see that through an educated lens. So one of the things that I hear people saying, and by the way, she's not imagining the fact that she keeps running into these people because people who are victims of domestic violence are then three to four times more likely to end up in another abusive relationship than someone who's never been abused. Hmm. So there is a pattern that gets established here. And what, and could we, we dwell, these, wait, wait, let's dwell on that for a second. Why, sure, sure. why do you think that is, or why did the research demonstrate that that might be that someone who's been in an abusive relationship is likely to end up in another? There could be a couple things happening there. There could be the fact that they have gotten used to being treated in a certain way and perhaps they don't know anything different. It could be that they are one of the people that an abuser is looking for, someone who's an open book, who's really giving and who really um, is empathic toward other people. Or it could be the fact that they're not understanding the underlying dynamics mm-hmm. that are happening here. Which is not to blame the victim. One of those is, exactly. I mean, the victim, well, certainly not. Um, it's because the only person who is at fault for domestic violence is the abuser themselves, of course. Mm-hmm. But victims do certain things to try and change that situation. A lot of times they believe that if they change their own behavior, things will change around them. And what they have to understand is that they're not choosing abusers. The abusers are choosing them. And you and can't fix them. We, we, we talk about this a lot on the show. Yeah. You can't fix someone. Like, Absolutely not. And it's they not your responsibility. They have to want to do that themselves. They have to want to get better themselves or yeah. they have to be in good working order when you meet them. A lot of people, they'll get into a relationship and the person will re- reveal that they are abusive or damaged in a way that makes the relationship untenable and they will feel like, oh, well, I can't just abandon this person. I can't just walk away. I have to repair this person. I have to demonstrate that the power of my love. Some people are savers, right? Right, the savers. power they of my wanna, love is going to rescue this person people. from their own shit and their own damage. And you need to pull the plug. Like if somebody, you know, the Maya Angelou quote, when they show you who they are, believe them the first Absolutely. time. And if what they show you is I'm an abusive, manipulative, or, or violent piece of shit, you need to go. That's right. And sometimes people feel like they're getting tricked over and over and they keep running into these awful people. But it was much like the caller said, what happens is not that these people are changing once they get into the relationship. It's that after a while, that facade falls away and the mask comes off and they, they're really revealing themselves for who they are. Mm-hmm. So it's important for us to find ways to notice that before we get too deeply involved. And that's really what the book is about. And that's what the caller called seeking advice about. How does she spot the early warning signs mm-hmm. of emotional abuse and manipulation? And 
Certainly. Give, give her, That's I, I, what I would tell her to look for. In addition to buying your book and reading your book, Stop Signs, off the t- you know, rattle off like some of the early warning signs that you should be watching out for, especially during that besotted, fell and fell hard early stage of love. Certainly. Um, well, as I said, they are looking for certain things. And one of the things that abusers are looking for is um, someone who's kind of a wounded soul. And they might go ahead and tell you a sob story as well, because they're trying to test your empathy levels and get you to open up to them. This is boundary probing. And this happens during the initial phases of the relationship where an abuser is trying to figure out just how far you will go, how much you will take, how much they can, uh, how much power and control they can assert over you. So the way this looks on the outside in the beginning is often good, right? There's this artificial charisma, this perfect person who jumps in your life and sweeps you off the seat and they're very charming and you have so much in common and they're very romantic towards you. Um, but what you start to notice after a little bit of time is that that person has some very um, important traits that you need to look out for. So one of those things would be somebody who has sort of rapid shifts in mood. One minute they're um, one person and another minute they're somebody else. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they... Um, they, they will frequently shift from being happy and normal to being angry or upset. They do a lot of uh, putting people down and criticizing and being demeaning. They act controlling, even over small things, um, deciding where you're going to go that night or what you should be wearing. They often try to isolate partners by not allowing them to hang out with certain friends or um, go to places where they're afraid they might meet somebody because they're jealous and possessive people and they really um, want to have that person all to themselves. They might start asking you things like, who were you talking to? Or who were you with last night? I want to see your phone. I want to look through your email. And sometimes, sometimes this abuse that sometimes that strategy comes packaged or in the drag of, I call it weaponized insecurity rather than raging at you Mm -hmm. about, you know, the people you were with or, you know, that you had a convo or a lunch with your ex or you still have a picture. They weep about it. They get super sad. And, you know, you're, you're, they're controlling you by having a giant performative heartache about how sad they feel that you did this thing that made them feel so insecure. And sometimes people don't spot that people sometimes spot, you know, my boyfriend is blowing up at me about the fact that I'm still friends with an ex from a million years ago uh, and you know, is looking through my phone and is raging at me and like, okay, that's that's the one of those red flags of an abuser. But a lot of people don't spot that the the other side of that red flag is somebody being just devastated and, and so insecure and so sad. And the only thing that will reassure them about your commitment is cutting that person out of your life and isolating yourself from that person. That's right. They're playing the victim. They're blaming you, and they're demonstrating a lack of accountability for their own feelings. It's you know, you made me do this. Exactly. Anyway, I interrupted. Um, yeah, no, it's fine. Um, you know, and, and toward the, um, as the relationship progresses, these signs are going to get more obvious. They're going to look like uh, things like pressuring somebody to have sex or to um, threatening them to, you know, if you do this or if you don't do that, I will. People sometimes will demonstrate physical force in an indirect way, like punching the wall or throwing something across the room. Mm -hmm. And these are really important signs to take note of because if somebody is acting physically aggressive in that way, it is just another step forward. Usually domestic violence doesn't start out with a punch in the face. Usually it's someone grabbing your arm or pushing you a little bit, and then it progresses and it gets worse and worse. 
So a lot of people believe that they wouldn't get involved in something like this, but it's insidious. It creeps up on you. And I've heard someone say, actually a caller say, credit their boyfriend because he was demonstrating self-control when he punched the wall instead of punching her. Rather than yeah, there's uh, cognitive dissonance going on there. Rather than IDing that as an implicit threat, like I, I'm capable of punching you. Now I'm choosing to punch the wall. Mm-hmm. Next time I might choose to punch you. So don't do that. Don't tell yourself if somebody punches the wall or throws something not at you that that's a good sign. That's a bad sign. That's a sign of escalation and and a potential escalation to come where it's not the wall they're punching; it's you they're punching. Yes, and that caller sounds like. She does. She said a lot of times, I feel blinded by love. And it's, it's that you want so badly for somebody to be a particular person that you start to believe they are and you make excuses for them when they're not. And the- so I do have a couple of things I'd like to um, say to that caller, um, ways that she can sort of strengthen herself for the future so that she doesn't have find herself in these scenarios anymore. Please. Um, well, in the book, we refer to this as armoring up. So really what this is, is building a, um, a strong base and a foundation within yourself so that you are less likely to become under the influence of an abuser. So some of the things that she could do is she could really work to try and cultivate her sense of self-esteem and her strong sense of self-worth. So that means stopping all that negative talk and treating herself and protecting herself in the same way that she would someone she loved, like her best friend or a a child. Um, she can do this through goal setting and accomplishing those small goals to try and build her confidence and cutting the negative people out of her life. She can also try and develop assertiveness skills. There are a lot of uh, classes and books about that, as well as a healthy mistrust so that you're not instantly giving people the benefit of the doubt all the time when it comes to your personal self. Um, it's important to build a strong support system so you have friends and family that you can turn to and to know what you want in a partner and then not compromise. I tell a story in the book about how when I was car shopping when I was younger, my father said, don't walk in unless you're willing to walk out, meaning that if hmm. you don't get so invested in the outcome of what you want that you're willing to compromise your beliefs or your, your personal self. And so I try to to tell people that when they're dating and when they're out looking for a partner, don't become so invested in the outcome of, oh, I want this partner, that you that you are blinded to the bad sides of that. And the other thing I would recommend is that people who are dating and looking for a partner, try to flip the script and take back some of the power in those dating relationships. So for example, instead of giving someone your phone number, you can get theirs instead, or you can drive or take an Uber to a date so that you're not dependent on them for a ride. You can go Dutch so you don't owe them anything. You can go on group dates with friends so that you can get their opinions. Mm -hmm. And you can meet in places where you're not right away consuming drugs and alcohol that might lower your guard or your sense of awareness about somebody. When you first meet somebody, you have to have that healthy sense of skepticism. So it's not about distrusting everybody. It's about trusting yourself enough to know that you're not going to be um, an easy target for somebody who might be looking for a new partner to abuse. So the last thing that I wanted to mention to your listeners is that if anybody out there feels like they need help in a situation that they're in, or they would just like to get some free advice and resources, 
they can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline number. It is 24 hours, it is free, it is confidential, and people can reach them through 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E. Lynn Fairweather, domestic violence consultant, speaker, and author of Stop Signs, Recognizing, Avoiding, and Escaping Abusive Relationships. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was a great, great, and very helpful conversation. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate you having me. Hey, Dan. I am a 20-year-old heterosexual female, and my question is pretty simple. I kind of used to be like a huge piece of, sh- uh, piece of shit, and so I cut off like all my friends from like that point in my life, but now... I only have like one friend that's a good person and I don't really have any other friends. So I'm just kind of wondering, how do you make friends as an adult? And also I'm not in college. So like, there's no like really clubs I can go to. Go places, do things, make yourself useful, get out of the house. And there are clubs out there. There's plenty of clubs out there outside of university environments, outside of college. There are environmentalist organizations, there are political organizations, pro-choice organizations, civil liberties organizations. There are groups in your town that just get together to play board games or go for bike rides or go up into the mountains and go hiking. Dig around. There are plenty of clubs, plenty to do as an adult. Also, making yourself useful That's a great way to meet other people who give a shit about the same things that you give a shit about and create friendships and find friends. All that said, I do think you have one other option, which is all the people that you cut out of your life because they were such deeply shitty people. Well, you were a deeply shitty person at that time too. You say that you were kind of a shitbag and you had to walk away from all of your shitbag friends. It's possible that in your old friendship circle, there may be one or two people like you, one or two people who were – being shitty but aren't shitty just as you were being shitty and now you're not shitty and you might want to give some of those folks the second chance that you would hope they would give you or anyone else would give you because you have pulled out of that nosedive and maybe some of them have too so don't cut them off or cut them out forever be open to reconnecting with those folks when they like you turn a corner hey then we're two gay guys in a loving relationship and we've been together for eight months We're open, and at the moment, we're having a little issue. When one of us is hooking up with someone else, the other one feels the need to uh, hook up as well. We want to be as communicative and open with each other about our uh, hookups as we can be, but we want the pressure we feel when one of us is doing a hookup to go away. So, do you have any advice? P.S. We love you. I love you, too. I wonder if you're going to love me if I keep talking, though, because I'm a little concerned that you're eight months into this new relationship, and it's an open relationship, and relationships can be open from the start, right out of the gate. But it just concerns me a little bit that you guys are hooking up with lots of other people at this stage in your relationship when, you know, at eight months or six months or four months, you should be effortlessly mostly obsessed with and focused on each other and building that bond and cementing that bond with layers and layers and layers of very sticky semen that hardens into a crust that binds you two together forever, hopefully. And so I'm just a little concerned that, you know, you guys are hooking up a lot and that the hookups happen at a clip where one of you feels deprived if the other is running off to hook up with somebody else. So maybe for the moment you'd feel a little less competitive if you guys just dialed it back. So do you know what for right now at this stage, let's err on the side of not hooking up with others because we're both having this tit for tat kind of sibling response to hookups where if you get one, I get one, you know, mom's going to give us each ice cream and we have to make sure that we get the exact same amount or it's not fairsies. And that's 
an immature response, really. And a relationship needs to be grounded in kind of a, a mature sense of who you each are and what you both mean to each other. And if you're having that kind of siblings dividing up ice cream with mom response to outside sexual contact, maybe your relationship isn't as grounded as it needs to be to bear the weight of openness, which is a stressor. It can be a stressor on a relationship. You know, I'm in an open relationship. Let's be honest about that. It adds additional stresses and complications to the relationship. We can't be naive about that. We also have the option of hooking up as a couple for now. If you guys want that outside sexual contact, if you need that juice in your life, sometimes literally that juice in your life, if you need that spark, if you both have that kind of sexually adventurous, outgoing drive, you can look at each other and say, right now, when you hook up without me or I hook up without you, we have this weird reaction with this dynamic that's a little unpleasant, so unpleasant we had to call Dan about it, who we love or used to love until Dan started to open his mouth in response to our call. So for right now, when we hook up, it's going to be together. We're going to tag team some dudes or get tag teamed by some dudes. And so when I hook up, you don't have to run out and find your own hookup because when I hook up, you're there. Hey, Dan. So I'm calling because there's this reoccurring thing. I'm in a relationship happily. Sex is really good. But when I get really specific about what I want in bed, my boyfriend just like totally shuts down, which is interesting because we're very exploratory and like I'm really into him choking me and shoving his fingers down my throat and it makes me come. But like, I don't know. I wanted something very specific and then he kind of shut down and like kept having, we kept having sex, but there wasn't any kissing or any real intimacy after that. And I tried to talk to him about it and it's just like fucking awkward. I mean, we've been together for close to seven years, so we should be able to talk about this. And I was just wondering if you had any feedback or things to do in the moment to ease the fucking weirdness. I wrote a whole Savage Love column recently about choking. Choking is very risky. It is very dangerous. I interviewed Jay Wiseman, author of SM101, Mistress Matisse, uh, frequent Savage Love cast and Savage Love contributor and guest expert, neither of whom, despite the sort of crazy sex practices that they uh, endorse and, and indulge in and can be explored safely, neither of them will do choking at all. So be very careful about choking. You can accidentally and suddenly injure someone or end someone's life. But I don't think choking is the issue here. I think your boyfriend and his reaction when you assert yourself, when you lay out what you would like to have happen, what you like to experience, when you throw your sexual desires on the table, when you demonstrate sexual agency, that he go that he shuts down on you, that he becomes even though he'll continue to fuck you, he withholds, stops kissing you, becomes much less intimate with you, much less connected to you. It's a form of sex shaming. It's a form of slut shaming. It's a form of kink shaming. And it's also a form of – it's a kind of controlling behavior because what he's telling you through his actions in those moments is don't ask that I'm put off by you having desires and, and making requests and demands of me or having kinks that – aren't necessarily mine or that I don't share, that I don't particularly understand. And you need to talk about that with him. That is not abusive behavior, but it is a kind of controlling behavior. And it's very sex shamey. It's very slut shamey. And I think it's kind of in the context of an opposite sex relationship, potentially very sexist behavior. 
It's fine for him to have desires. It's fine for him to act on desires. The minute you have a non-normative, aberrant desire of your own that you would like to experience, you would like him to participate in, he freezes up on you and withdraws from you and will condescend to masturbate inside you at that moment but isn't going to kiss you or connect with you except to use you as a flashlight. That's unacceptable. You guys need to be able to use your words and talk through this. And if he can't talk with you about these things, about your desires and your agency, if he can't honor your agency, I'm not sure this is the right guy for you. I want to say not the right guy for you long-term. This is already a long-term relationship. But you need to nip this in the bud. <laughs> not the, but it's not the bud if it's a long-term relationship. This is the fucking rose bush at this point. You need to prune that the fuck back. All those buds, all those blooms, all those branches. You need to cut that down to the ground and say, I have to feel entitled as any man would feel, as most men feel, as all men feel, entitled to articulate my desires without being shamed, verbally or non-verbally. And he is shaming you non-verbally, and it's got to stop. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a married cis-hetero man living in the Midwest. I've been married to my wife for six years. We've been together for seven, known each other for 14. She's six years younger than me, but we've always been extremely sexually compatible. We're both GGG and have satisfied nearly every fantasy and desire the other has. The whole time we've been together, the sex has been frequent, adventurous, and uninhibited. My wife is amazing. Uh, my wife and I have always both enjoyed sex and absolutely love the sex we have together. Two years ago, she was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, a, de a degenerative disease in which her connective tissues are degrading in every joint in her body, not just knees, hips, shoulders, and elbows, but every bone in her hands and feet, every rib, and every part of her spine causes her constant agonizing pain. She has to take hardcore painkillers and muscle relaxers several times a day and wears a fentanyl patch at all times. We've also received medical marijuana cards from our state, and those products do bring her some temporary relief. But her chronic extreme pain, her joints popping in and out, and all the medications leave her constantly exhausted, in bed, and severely mobility limited, using a cane or a wheelchair to get around. Our sex life has come to a screeching halt because the progression of her disease has been incredibly rapid. We're able to give each other affection, but she just can't tolerate having any kind of sex that we can think of anymore. She's told me twice now that I should look for sex outside of her marriage with her blessing, a hall pass. I've refused, though. Sex is a healthy, natural, normal part of life, and I need to have it. But so does she. I'm comfortable being monogamous. We took vows, and we meant them. I made a promise to her to be faithful, and I haven't regretted it. But I need to have sex. She frequently cries and becomes despondent because she feels that this disease makes her a failure as a mother and a wife, which couldn't be further from the truth. If I were to take her up on this offer, I believe it would only cement her opinion that she's a failure. But I need to have sex. Her offer is a dream come true for most married men, to be allowed to have sex with multiple partners while being in a loving, committed relationship. But she loves sex every, much, every bit as much as I do, and deserves to enjoy it too, but she can't. It's so unfair that this disease has robbed her of the ability to have sex, and that I could go out and get laid whenever I want while she gets nothing. I love her desperately, and our life together is wonderful, despite this disease so deeply affecting our family. At the same time, I have a legitimate biological imperative need. I'm stuck, Dan. Can you think of a way that I could find sexual release without hurting the love of my life? Is there a way for me to not feel like a selfish monster for even considering this arrangement? I'd love to hear your advice and any that your listeners have. You could jack off. 
possible to find sexual release without hurting your wife, without involving other women or other partners. You could jack the fuck off. Yes, there's this biological imperative, this drive to have sex. Most of us, most men begin to experience, most women also, that biological imperative, that drive as minors, 13, 14 years old, we start jacking off. We guys constantly. There's a point in most men's lives that they can look back on where they might have been jacking off four or five or six times a day. Clearly a strong biological drive, clearly an imperative there, clearly the dick sending up signals and giving orders and asking for things that the dick couldn't have because you're 14 years old, because you're 13 years old, because you're not having partnered sex yet. And right now, because of your wife's medical condition, my heart goes out to your wife and to you and to your family. You're not having sex. You're not able to have sex, not because you're a minor, not because you don't have a partner, but because your partner is incapable of having sex now and maybe incapable of having sex ever again. So what does that mean for you as a couple? Well, you can still be intimate. You can still be connected. It sounds like you still love each other. It sounds like there's still touch and skin to skin contact, perhaps side by side that allows your wife to feel connected to you, but doesn't sound like she's ever going to be capable physically of having intercourse or the, the active adventurous sex life that you two used to enjoy together. And so what do you do? Well, if you don't want to have sex with anybody else. You jack the fuck off. You're 13 fucking years old again. And it's you and your right hand. You could also take your wife up on her offer. If you believe it is sincerely offered, you could take her up on it, not abandon her to run off with a million other women, not be out of the house four or five nights a week. But there are definitely women out there whose husbands are no longer capable of having sex, whose husbands are past sex now because of a disability, because of an illness, because of Alzheimer's, because of whatever. And there are lots of relationships out there that don't get the credit or honor they deserve where two people who are committed to their partners, to their spouses, to people they've been with for many, many years and have families with find comfort and release in each other's arms without taking anything away from their partners and often and hopefully ideally with their partner's blessing. It might, however, be a torment to your wife to know that this is happening. So I think the conversation you need to have now is with your wife. And I think you need to say to her, I am happy for the time being to be intimate with you in any way that I can be and to seek release in my right hand and to masturbate and have solo sex for now. And in that conversation that you have with your wife, you really need to draw her out. Does she make this offer from a place of pain? If you acted on this offer, if you sought release and comfort in someone else's arms, who may be in a similar circumstance to yours, would your wife be hurt? Would that be a torment to her psychologically on top of the physical torment that she's already experiencing? If so, maybe not, dude. Maybe it's just going to be you and your right hand for a while. And then whatever skin-to-skin intimacy and, and, and holding and touch your wife can enjoy and is capable of for a while. But if she's offering this to you from a place of not just you can therefore have release in someone else's arm, sexual release, but she's offering this to you because it would lift a burden from her own shoulders. If she feels terrible about what the disease has not just taken from her, but also taken from you and you seeking this elsewhere would not just be a release to you, but again, a relief for her, then it would be 
petty and small of you not to take her up on it. If she feels now pressured to do things sexually that she cannot do or that cause her physical pain because you're her only outlet and you will not seek sex elsewhere with her blessing because you should only have sex with her and your wife and that's what you really want, that could be unfair to her. That could be heaping another burden up on her. So you need to talk with your wife. You need to figure out which of those two things it is. That she's giving you this hall pass and it upsets her to think about you actually acting on it or she's giving you this hall pass and it is a burden to her that you haven't acted on it or won't act on it. Again, my heart goes out to you, your wife, your family, uh, this difficult time. You sound like a sensitive, thoughtful guy. You also sound like you're a little bit up your own ass about this and you need to pull yourself out of your ass and connect with your wife about this. I'm calling in response to the woman who called about her boyfriend decorating her daughter's room. I have heard a lot of crazy shit on this show, but I've never felt more compelled to call and tell that woman to please heed Dan's advice. First of all, has her boyfriend never seen a TV show in his entire life? The kids' rooms are always decorated for kids. Duh. I just can't even imagine the real depth of this man's cruelty if he can bring himself to traumatize a poor little girl, reminding her that this isn't really her space, and she's never had her own space before. Dump the motherfucker. Hi, Dan. This is a call and response to your latest episode with the lady whose boyfriend decorated her room. Okay, he might just not be used to kids. I understand that most people who don't have kids in their lives would see that they want a pink sparkly room and princesses and fluff and whatever. But if he doesn't have kids or nieces and nephews, this might just have been a gesture of him going, hey, it's done, nothing to worry about. She says that she put Hello Kitty stuffies. She never said that he made her take them out of there. She said that her daughter was so upset and, 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 but she never said that he knew this or how he was reacting to her daughter being upset. So... I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I was a step-parent that didn't know how to react to little kids at one point. We all live. We all make mistakes. If you talk with him, hey, he might have a different reaction than you're expecting. Hey, Dan. I'm calling about episode 580, the college guy with all the crazy ex-girlfriends. I think your advice was spot on, but I was surprised you missed out on an important teachable moment, namely telling this kid to stop calling his ex-girlfriends crazy. As you pointed out, it takes two people to make a toxic relationship, and I'm glad you made him take a look at his own accountability and question whether the shit smell is coming from his own shoe, so to speak. But I think it's also important for this guy and every other straight guy who blames all their relationship drama on those emotional, crazy women to be told that it's not okay to perpetuate that bullshit. Like you said, all relationships will have conflict eventually, and if he continues to believe that drama equals crazy girlfriend then when conflict does inevitably arise with a super chill new girlfriend, he won't be equipped to navigate it. He'll just go, oh, no, it turns out she was another crazy one all along. Plus, just in case his dating days aren't over, he should know that referring to his exes as crazy, it's not a good look in most women's eyes. All right, we're not going to leave it there, not quite yet, because we want to rattle off a few gift suggestions for the holiday season. You can give the gift of the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast by going to savagelovecast.com and clicking on gift. You can send the magnum edition, no ads, twice as long, Savage Lovecast to the Savage Lovecast fan on your list or get one for yourself. You can also get Impeach the Motherfucker already. Gear, hats, t-shirts, mugs, lapel pins, 
stickers at www.itmfa.org. All proceeds benefit the American Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood, and the International Refugee Assistance Project. We have so far been able to donate $200,000 to those organizations, and we're looking forward to donating even more as we all continue to fight Trump. And the Republican National Committee is selling a solid urine gold yellow Christmas tree ornament with Trump's face on it. I wouldn't recommend purchasing it, but if your dad's a Trump fan and you want to get him a pee joke without letting him in on that joke, you can go to the RNC and you can order that Trump ornament for your dad. But for people on your list who are smart and sane, you can give them the Savage Love Cast and you can give them the gift of impeach the motherfucker already gear. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Also, join me in Portland, December 21st, that Thursday, for a very special live taping of the Savage Lovecast. It is our happy holidays, Christmas spectacular. I will be there, along with Santa's pain deer, toys for tits, a gay and a manger, a little Hummer boy, and more. We've got comedy, we've got a special music guest all of that thursday december 21st go to savagelovecast.com slash events for tickets follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow lynn fairweather on twitter at stop signs book the savage lovecast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and nancy i'll be back at you next week my installment of the savage lovecast thanks for